This may come as a big shocker to many of you who see before you a portrait of high fashion and exquisite good looks and rugged masculinity. Um, but in high school, I was something of a nerd. Look at that guy. A little baby face. Uh, I was never really picked on, uh, and I was casual acquaintances or former friends of people who were popular, but I wasn't exactly the top of the high school food chain. Um, I had about 30 U2 albums and exactly zero girlfriends in high school, so <laughs> if that tells you anything. It started out that way in grade 10, carried through to grade 11, um, but grade 12 was a little bit different. Maybe you had a similar experience when you were in high school, I don't, I don't know, but in grade 12, people seemed to care a lot less about what social circle they fell into. All those walls started to break down. People realized that high school was coming to an end, and they noticed... Or, or, were able to see the ridiculousness of the social ladder concept, and they softened up to outsiders a little bit. I was pretty low on that social ladder, as you can tell, just look at me. Uh, but it didn't seem like such a big deal by the end of grade 12. Uh, that became most evident for me in near the end of my grade 12 year uh, when, we went, when I went on the annual bike trip that they do every, I don't know if it's May or June or whenever it is, but every year, the Phys Ed 12 and Pure Math 31 students would um, ride a bicycle from Jasper to Banff, 300 kilometers on mountainous terrain um, down the Highsfields Parkway, Highway 93. So it's definitely a group bonding experience for this um, bunch of near adults. And it was absolutely the greatest part of my high school career. It was the most memorable, just the, the best part of high school. Well, last year, as I got ready to gut our basement, uh, I was going through some old boxes of memories that were stored downstairs, and in it was a journal that I had written during the week of my bike trip um, that was submitted and marked as an assignment for the trip. And uh, in it, I had written about the last night of our expedition. That, I remember that last night really, really vividly. Um, we, had, we had tented in groups, set up camp, and had gotten supper ready, and then a sizable chunk of us just started out this impromptu game of touch football. I played quarterback, which is not something I would have had the guts to do at any other point in high school. And by then, I was more comfortable and played quarterback. And people were cheering uh, for me, and I was bonding with these people. And I remember the fact that I was able to joke around with, and, and I was right in there with the popular kids. And that was a big deal in grade 12. I also remember that my friend Stu accidentally hit me in the face, and my nose was bleeding everywhere. And... <laughs> Everybody laughed at my expense, but not meanly, just one of the guys. <laughs> and it was in recalling that night that I had recorded in my journal. <laughs> I had written in my journal one of the most cringeworthy, most embarrassing pieces of writing I, I've ever written, which is saying something, as you know, you listen to me every single week. And what I wrote was so embarrassing. But I said, as the blood... <laughs> it's so bad. As the blood vessels in my nose broke and blood ran freely, so too did the wall between me and my classmates break and laughter ran freely. Oh, oh yeah, you're groaning and oh, I'm right there with you. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly Pulitzer Prize worthy. But despite that terrible simile, the truth remained. Aside from a handful of decent friendships that I had with people who were on that trip, um, I was an outsider for the most part for that group of 40 or so people who went on the trip. But after the trip, on the cusp of the end of high school, I was much less of an outsider. And to me, that brought a feeling of relief 
and justification and gratitude. I was happy about that. It didn't matter that I was still shy and awkward and nerdy and look like this. It didn't matter nearly as much. The, the importance of social standing had been diminished for all of us as a group. We were peers who had battled the mountain together. And in fact, I don't know if Bruce still wears his, his, his T-shirt from the trip, but um, Adam Berkner, who was a kid on the trip, he kept saying, we don't quit till the mountain quits. We don't quit till the mountain quits. And that became our rallying cry for all of us. We don't, on those three-kilometer uphills, we don't quit till the mountain quits. And so as a group, we had battled together. And so the unity and acceptance inherent in this new identity felt really good. Well, knowing what you do about Acts 10, you can probably see where all of this is going. Last week, we discussed the striking vision that Peter had. And um, I, I wasn't able to record it last week. I forgot to hit record, but I re-recorded it. So it's up on the podcast if you want to catch up um, in Acts 10. But we discussed about the vision that Peter had of the sheet with all the unclean animals mixed with clean animals. And God saying, take and eat it. He learned through that vision that the Lord, from the Lord, that no person should ever be called unclean or impure. That's what it says in verse 28. Peter learned that no person should be called impure or unclean. And now Peter's putting that truth into action in ways that will forever alter the landscape of the church. Even right now to 2017 in Clyde. Peter and the Jews, allow me to take my metaphor from the bike trip and extend it way too far. Peter and the Jews were the popular kids. And everything in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Acts 9 is like grade 10 and 11. There were insiders and there were outsiders. But Peter's vision is like the grade 12 bike trip. An enormous and monumental opportunity for walls to be smashed down like so many bloody noses. (laughs) Which means that Cornelius and the Gentiles are like me, outsiders who are eager to be accepted and validated and valued like insiders. I know that's a stretch. Just work with me. And so this morning, we're going to wrap up Acts chapter 10. Peter, the foundation of the church and the key holder of the church, is reaching into his pockets, grasping grasping for the key that will unlock the door to let the Gentiles in. He's right on the cusp of turning that key. Today, the key gets turned. And as we will see this morning, the key for unlocking that door is found in the basics. The basics of belief. It isn't a matter of complicated high school popularity politics It's very simple. It's a matter of basic salvation. Who is acceptable to God and why? And looking further, how do we respond to God's acceptance? These are the basics, folks. The root core of our faith. How do outsiders become insiders centuries before the invention of bicycles and footballs and high schools? How can it it be done even without any of those things that I experienced? Well, we'll find out in Acts 10, 34 to 48. So let's read that now. So this is... Peter has just arrived in the home of Cornelius. He said, why did you summon me? Cornelius says, this, I had this vision, and God said, you had a message for me. We're really eager to hear it, so please give us this message. And Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Your translation may say hanging him on a tree. It's a better translation. 
Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. And again, your translation might say, the circumcised believers. We'll get to that later. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. And with that, the Gentiles are in. They, they are accepted. Thousands of years of dominant Old Testament theology regarding foreigners and outsiders is wiped clean and started over. Although that is a bit misleading, since it's clear throughout the Jewish scriptures, and especially in the prophets, and even all the way back to Abraham, that God had a plan for including all the nations of the world in his plan for salvation, even from the beginning. And now, that plan is being kicked into overdrive. Peter is the key holder who opens the door. And he is the rock upon which the apostolic authority for this major change will be founded. If Peter says it's okay, then as we'll find out in, into chapter 11, then that has a lot of weight to it. But of course, Peter's master, Jesus, had prepared a seat at the table for these Gentiles years earlier. Jesus was already at work beginning to invite the Gentiles in. In John 10:16, speaking of himself as the good shepherd and his followers as sheep who hear his voice and follow him, Jesus seems to hint to the welcoming of the Gentiles when he says, I have other sheep that are not in this sheep pen. The sheep pen being Israel, and there are sheep outside of that sheep pen who must be welcomed in as well. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Later in John 12, 32, Jesus is predicting his imminent death when he proclaims that when I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. All People, not all Jewish people, not all circumcised people, all people. And so these verses are fairly clear, but they're still a little bit, they're not, they're still a little bit cryptic. There's still a bit of mystery to them, but it becomes very clear when we get to the Great Commission, which says very simply, go and make disciples of all the nations, all the nations. Not go and make disciples of the Jews in those pagan nations. Go into those nations and make disciples of pagan Gentile residents of those nations. When you use the word nation, when you see the word nations throughout the Bible, that basically means non-Jews. So go and make disciples of those non-Jews. That's his final command to them. We see it again in Acts too. This is Matthew 28, but we see it again in Acts. The first thing that we have is Jesus giving another commission to the disciples. Saying, go into where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, who lives at the ends of the earth? Everybody, people, all people, the Gentiles. There is precedent from Jesus for what's happening in Acts 10. But there is much more recent precedent as well. The perfectly timed intertwining visions of Peter and Cornelius, which confirm and validate each other, just like, Peter's vision was confirmed three times. God's stamp of approval three times. Take it and eat it. I said you can eat it. Take it and eat it. Um, three times that happens. And these intertwining visions are proof that it's God who is pulling the strings in this whole event. Peter, 
as rash and as stubborn though he may be, is not the primary instrument in the orchestra. The orchestra is being conducted by the almighty God of Abraham, who promised to bless all people. Yes, even Gentile people. And so I want to spend some time examining the content of Peter's sermon, just to make a few notes. But first, you're probably familiar with my sermon writing method because it's the same every week. It's really based off something that you all learned in maybe grade three or grade four. When communicating something vocally or in writing, you always begin by introducing your main theme, introduce the topic. You then spend the bulk of your time on content that supports your main theme before wrapping it up with a conclusion that summarizes your main theme and sends people out. That's, I'm sitting in grade six LA class on Mondays and Wednesdays and that's what they're learning, how to write a paragraph with a topic sentence, a body, and a concluding sentence. That's what you do to, to reinforce your theme. In Bible college, this was called hook, book, look, took. I think I've mentioned this before. The hook sets up the topic and hooks everyone in by grabbing their attention. Thus, my story about a nerdy high schooler who bleeds on himself and suddenly everyone likes it. That's to get your attention and make you think about what might come. Book introduces the scriptural message, which in this case is Peter's message regarding the basics of belief in Jesus and the basics of the Gentile response. Look is an in-depth examination of the text featuring teaching points and illustrations that you can store in your brain and take home and impact your life, hopefully. And took is the conclusion, where you leave the people with a simplified lesson they can took away from, and I know that's improper grammar, but hook, book, look, take just really offends my sensibilities. So it's hook, book, look, took. Now, why do I give away all the sacred secrets of sermon writing? Well, it's not a secret. Grade fours use it when they talk about fossils in front of the class. But... It's no secret. The reason I mention hook, book, look, took is because we see Peter using this method brilliantly in the first gospel sermon ever intended for a Gentile audience. Beautifully, powerfully. His introduction, his hook, and his conclusion, his took, are beautifully succinct. And it, it, that succinctness makes their history-shaking significance all the more impactful for their bluntness. It, he's got this captive audience and they've been waiting to hear what he has to say. And he marches into the room, and he doesn't butter them up. He doesn't say, hey, thanks for having me. Let me tell you a few things. He gets right to it. In fact, last week, he says right to their face, you know that for a Jew to go into the house of Gentiles like you is forbidden. You know that I, I should not be here. You are filthy Gentiles. I don't belong here because I'm a Jew. That's how, he, that's how he breaks the ice with these people. And then he goes on, to say to make this it's it's really history altering like i cannot emphasize how much this changes the course of human history because it does and so he begins in verse 34 and 35 by saying i now realize how true it is that god does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right that's the hook that's what he starts with that's the main thesis of his sermon God doesn't show favoritism, and in every nation, if you, if, you, if you fear God and do what's right, you will be accepted by him. To us, this is obvious, 2,000 years after the fact, right? We all grew up with that really cringeworthy, racially insensitive song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's, it's pretty cringy <laughs> to sing it now. Um, but it makes its point effectively. God's love extends to and invites and accepts peoples from every nation of the world. 
skin color, gender, racial differences. None of that matters. None of that is important at all. It is no longer just a Jewish project, this work of salvation. It's not just something for Israel. But, so, so that's obvious to us, but to the Jewish believers, especially here as they're hearing Peter say this, this is far from obvious. This is not obvious at all, as we'll see next time we, when we get into Acts 11. Even other apostles like Peter have a really tough time accepting this. So this did not start out obvious. But Peter is saying that your Jewish heritage, your circumcision, your dietary restrictions that we talked about last week, your temple sacrifices, your scrolls written in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, none of that will save you any longer. God shows no favoritism based on any such things. And notice how Peter doesn't say that God no longer shows favoritism. It doesn't say he no longer shows favoritism as if he once did show favoritism. Because that's not how it was either. Even in the Old Testament, he was open to having foreigners and Gentiles worship him. And he gave provisions for Israel to care for such people from outside of Israel who choose to worship the God of Israel. The God of all, which is what Paul says here. He is Lord of all. Whoops, I mean Peter, not Paul. Moreover, throughout the the prophets, God made it clear that he was in the business of working with and caring for all the nations, even hated nations like the Philistines and Syrians. This is Amos 9-7 and Isaiah 19-25. You think, you think Israel wanted to hear that God brought the Philistines and the Arameans out for them, just as he brought Israel out? They hate those guys. You think they want to hear, Israel wants to hear that God was directing the Philistines and the Syrians? They didn't want to hear about that, but it's true anyway. He calls age-old enemies such as Egypt and Assyria his people. His people, not not just Israel. Egypt are his people. And the work of his hands, his handiwork. That's what he says in Isaiah 19.25. God never showed favoritism. He was always working with the nations. And he was always compelling Israel to work among the nations too. It wasn't all just swords and bloodbaths, although that was an important aspect of holiness. Israel was to be a light to the world. God is always at work shaping and summoning all the peoples of earth back to himself. And so the basis of his acceptance is no longer sourced in the proper nationality or a perfect religious background, which is what the the Jews of the time would have assumed. The basis for his acceptance is quite simply, quite basically, faith. That is the basis for his acceptance. You receive grace. There's nothing you can do about that. Nothing you could do for that. It's just his gift to you. And your response, the thing that makes you acceptable, isn't how you were born, where you came from, how perfect you had been in your life. There's no such thing as perfect in your life. The thing that makes you acceptable is your response in faith to that grace. Fearing him and doing what is right. That's how we respond. Or in other words, loving him and demonstrating that love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is also how Peter winds up this kerygma message. You remember we talked about kerygma, the, sort of the core root message of the gospel? That's what this is. It's the kerygma now open. It's kerygma 2.0, where now the Gentiles are invited in. And he winds up, his took, his conclusion is, in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's all it takes, belief. The basis for forgiveness and salvation is belief in him. That is the most basic truth that Peter wants to tell these brand new baby believers. 
He begins with it and ends with it. It's open to everyone. All you need to do is believe. So that's the hook and the took. But in between, in between that earth-shattering intro and shocking conclusion, in between that we find the meat of Peter's sermon. The book and the look, if you will. It has elements common to all the Kerygma messages he's preached since chapter 2, and there's been quite a few that we've seen. But this one has a few added details, which makes sense because Peter is preaching to theological infants, brand new baby believers. Cornelius was clearly familiar with the basics of, of Judaism. His prayers demonstrated a love for God, and his acts of charity demonstrated a love for his neighbor. Um, he, was probably, he probably had a working knowledge of the law and the prophets, because he was a God-fearer. He would have attended synagogue and, and heard those things. But Cornelius is still merely a God-fearing Gentile. He is not a full-fledged Israelite. And it's likely that Cornelius had never had an actual run-in with Jesus himself. Probably never actually met Jesus. He likely relied on hearsay and reputation. But now, now here's Peter, this real-deal apostle right there in his living room, teaching him all about it. And this real-deal apostle doesn't miss his opportunity to make Jesus' life and death and glorification known to these former outsiders. The content of Peter's sermon is very similar to the outline of his future disciple, Mark's gospel. You, you remember I mentioned last week, Mark trained under Peter for, I don't know when or for how long, but they think that most of the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's eyewitness account because Mark would have hung out with Peter. And so Peter's sermon here very much is exactly the same outline as the gospel of Mark. It begins with uh, John's ministry of baptism, both the gospel and Peter's sermon do before moving briskly into Jesus' ministry in Galilee and Judea in verses 30, 38 and 39, which, by the way, that is the bulk, obviously, of the gospel, is everything Jesus said and taught and did. Here, it's like a verse and a half. It kind of brisks right there. It just kind of mentions that he had done some healings and had gone to Galilee. He doesn't spend much time there. And then he moves on to the crucifixion and the resurrection and then wraps it up with um, his eyewitness evidence to the resurrection and post-resurrected commands from Jesus. That's what Peter's sermon is about, and that's what the Gospel of Mark is about. That's the breadth of Mark's Gospel, which is evidence that this is the template that Peter used for all his sermons. Mark would have heard it enough to know, hey, this, these are the basics, this is what I need to include. They are easily digestible and incredibly simplified. Peter is not focused on any one element of Jesus' teaching. In fact, he glosses over Jesus' teachings altogether to paint this overarching, overarching portrait of the story of Jesus' salvation. He focuses on the basics. There's time to work out the details later, which is probably exactly what he did when he accepted Cornelius' invitation to stay for a few days. In those few days, that's probably when he got into the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. But for now, it's the basics. And so a few notes about those basics of the, the good news. Um, verses 36 to 38 sound very much like Acts part 1 in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus introduces himself and his mission in his hometown of Nazareth. In Luke 4, Jesus steps boldly in front of people who had seen him grow up as just a carpenter's son. Isn't that Joseph's boy? And here, Joseph's boy gets up in synagogue, unrolls the, the scroll to the prophet Isaiah, and, and boldly declares, boldly reads and interprets Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He closes it up and says, this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in me. Which is this huge mic drop of an introduction to your ministry. This, the anointing, the, anoint, the, the Lord's anointed servant 
has, that's basically the Messiah, the Son of Man, is who has come to do good among the poor and free the oppressed and give sight to the blind, he's here and he's me. And you know me. I'm the guy who tailed around with Joseph building cabinets or whatever. I'm that guy. I am the Son of Man, the Anointed One, God's chosen servant. That's what Jesus insists after reading the scroll. And that's what Peter teaches his Gentile friends in Acts 10, that this prophecy was about to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The, the rest of the Gospel of Luke shows Jesus doing exactly what he proclaimed he would do, freeing the oppressed, showing love to the poor, all of that, because he was the anointed servant. It's a claim in, in Luke 4 that almost gets Jesus pushed off a cliff. <laughs> he has to magically banish so that he doesn't get pushed off a cliff because it's so radical. He's basically waving a flag that says, Messiah here, I'm the Messiah, it's me. And they understand that and they reject that as so many humans do. But it's a claim that he would verify with every healing, every demonstration of divine power, every exorcism, every authoritative word that came out of his mouth proved that he was the anointed son of man, son of God. And these acts and teachings had reached Cornelius. You couldn't live in Palestine in 35 AD and not have heard at least a little bit about this Jesus fellow. So Peter drives the purpose home reinforcing the trustworthiness of these stories of Jesus by highlighting his own status as an eyewitness in verse 39. Their eyewitness authority supports the facts that come next, the most basic and transformational truths that followed Jesus, um, that, that came after all that Jesus did and taught and, and healed. And, and that basic truth is this, that after his life of love and, and service and power, after that life of love, he was murdered. As is usual for Peter, he focuses on the Old Testament curse associated with someone who is hung on a tree. Someone who is hung on a tree is accursed and had to stay up there, had to be taken down before midnight or whatever, but you were especially cursed if you were hung on a tree. You were afforded no um, respectable burial. Your family wasn't even allowed to weep over you. If you were hung on a tree, you were cursed, and that, that's how you entered into the afterlife. And, and Peter always goes back to that, that it's, it's a curse. Jesus, there was a curse on Jesus because it's a non-too-subtle reminder that even his non-Jewish audience, in this case, would understand. They would be familiar with that. They would understand that someone hung on a cross, and remember it was a centurion like Cornelius's job to crucify people, they would understand that that, is, that person is unworthy of, never mind followers, just unworthy of being grieved over. It, it's a reminder that Jesus' death was cruel and unjust. And oh yeah, carried out by men, just like Cornelius, Roman centurions tasked with keeping the peace in Judea by crushing accursed rebels. Crushing accursed rebels like Jesus of Nazareth. It's a gut punch, not just to Cornelius, but to all humans who ever follow in Cornelius' footsteps. We are culpable for the death of an innocent man. It was gruesome and it was unfair and we might as well not gloss over it. It was our fault. You and me. That's another basic truth of the gospel that Peter emphasizes. But this death had a purpose, as you know, and as Peter explains to Cornelius in his entourage. God raised Jesus up on the third day and allowed him to be seen by many eyewitnesses. Peter relies heavily on this eyewitness angle, and this makes sense because the resurrection is the single most crucial element of the whole story. Without the resurrection... Jesus is just like Stephen, a good man killed unfairly, 
a light snuffed out too early, but not somebody worthy to be called a Messiah, not somebody glorified at the right hand of God. Without the resurrection, Paul even says it later in his writings, we are to be pitied more than anyone else. It's all empty. It's all meaningless without the resurrection. And that resurrection hangs on the eyewitness accounts of men and women like Peter. Without it, we've got nothing. That takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? That's the plan. But the resurrection is the rekindling of that light. It's the flame that's now spreading even to the Gentiles. Without the resurrection, Christianity is pitiful and toothless. It's just a bunch of nice people doing good stuff. But if the apostolic eyewitness to the resurrection is true, well, that changes things, doesn't it? In fact, it should change everything. And Luke, who wrote Acts 10, seems really hung up on one particular element of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. More than any of the other gospel writers, Luke really emphasizes that when Jesus came back, he ate and drank with the apostles. He, he's really hung up on that fact. In fact, all of, all of chapter 10 seems like when Luke was writing this, he was just really hungry and somebody needed to bring him a sandwich. Because it starts with Peter's vision, Peter is starving on the roof, and then he has a vision of what? Food. And then it mentions very explicitly that Peter invited Cornelius' entourage into his house and they ate food together. And now here he is giving the base, the core basics of the Kerygma message to these brand new believers. And he goes out of his way to say, oh yeah, and Jesus ate and drank with the apostles. It's, it's this big deal for Luke, which is kind of funny to me. For a sermon... That, that's exactly. You can't have belief without food, without, without the table. Um, table fellowship is actually really crucially important to Luke. It, it shows acceptance and welcoming into the family. And, and so that's part of why he mentions food. But for a sermon that focuses exclusively on the basics, it's a fascinating element for him to include. So why does he include it? Well, I, I think there's a purpose. If Jesus ate and drank, that means that he had a real human body. He was not an apparition or a ghost. Uh, he was no supernatural being or an angel. He, he rose up fully human, just as he was fully human on the day that he died. Just as he had been truly human as a suffering servant in Galilee. So too was he truly human when his blood was shed for us. So too was he fully human when he came back to life. Fully human. Just like he was fully divine. This humanity mixed with divinity is what qualifies Jesus to be, as Peter says in verse 42, the judge of the living and the dead. And by the way, not the judge of the Jews and the Gentiles, the judge of the living and the dead, the judge of all. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you will be judged by the perfect judge. And the, what makes him a perfect judge is the fact that he was fully human, human enough to eat food after he came back to life. Because he was fully human and understood all the needs and all the weaknesses of being human, and because he was also fully divine, knowing and experienced the fullness of holiness, he is the perfect candidate to judge all of humanity for all time. He knows what it is to be human and he knows what it is to be divine. And the contrast between mankind and God in that way is beautiful. But from a human perspective, we always make that ugly. Humanity beheld a humble servant and raised him to his bloody death. They saw this guy couldn't possibly be a Messiah. He can't be the son of God. What a pathetic guy he is. Crucify him. And so they raised him up to his bloody death. But God beheld a humble servant and raised him to everlasting glory and power. How humanity views the divinity of Jesus 
versus how God views the, the, the divinity of Jesus is very different, vastly different. And this too is a basic of Christianity, that to be exalted and glorified, you must first be humbled and serve. No matter who you are, there is nobody who doesn't need to be taken down a few pegs before they're welcome into the kingdom. We all like to think we're up here. Jesus himself didn't think he was up here. Jesus himself brought himself down to here. And that's what got him raised up and glorified Lord of heaven and earth for all eternity. Because he came down first. That is a basic of Christianity. You are not doing Christianity right. You're not even doing Christianity at all. Unless you have that. Humility and, and servant-heartedness. He was fully human and fully divine in life and death and resurrection, so much so that he even sampled the fish and the wine on his way back. And so this frail human, containing all the love and power of God, had orders for his followers. That's kind of how Peter wraps up his sermon here. And his orders were to preach and to testify, kind of exactly like what Peter is doing right in that moment, preaching and testifying. In fact, he's preaching and testifying in the most unlikely location of all, the home of a Gentile. He shouldn't be there, according to traditions that date back thousands of years. But there he is, preaching and testifying, just like his master commanded him to. In the home of a Gentile who had demonstrated a love of God and a love of others, and who is now a brother, along with Peter, inside the gates of the kingdom. Uh, Cornelius is now, like Peter, a fellow preacher and testifier to the grace of Jesus. He is, like Peter, beholden to the same service, to the same king as Peter himself. All that they have to do, Peter and Cornelius, Jew and Gentile alike, all they have to do is receive the grace offered to them and respond with a life lived in submission to the Jesus that they now testify about. While Peter is still speaking, and I'm almost done because the passage is almost done, while Peter is still speaking and explaining everything, he is rudely interrupted. Rudely interrupted, not by Cornelius' commanding officer, not by the Apostle Paul bursting in the door to say, I'm supposed to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. I want to kick the door down. Not by a Jewish Christian here to chastise Peter for hanging out in the home of a filthy Gentile. Not interrupted by any human at all, in fact. Who is he interrupted by? The Holy Spirit. The interruption comes from God himself, who roars into the room and completes the events of Pentecost that had begun years earlier. Back then... And I'm not going to say the first Pentecost and that this is the second Pentecost because that's not true. It's the same Pentecost. It's the closing of, it's the the bridging of the gap. It's the same Pentecost. But back then, it was only Jewish believers who experienced the fire and the wind and the glossolalia. Remember that word? Glossolalia? Say it with me. It's so fun. Glossolalia. Do you remember what that is? (laughs) Glossolalia is speaking in tongues. And speaking in tongues, and it's, it's insinuated that when you speak in tongues, it's speaking the glory of God in tongues you had never spoken before. Many languages all at once. Um, I lost my spot completely. Glossolalia will do that to you. Back then, it was only Jewish believers who experienced the fire and the wind and the glossolalia. Now, however, mixed with Peter's visions and Peter's newly enlightened interpretation of the prophets, this is the final confirmation. This is the stamp of approval on all the Gentiles that the Almighty God has been orchestrating all of these proceedings the whole time from the very beginning. And the, whole, the Holy Spirit is his seal of approval. The descent of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles is the last and the greatest sign 
that there is truly no longer any such thing as an unclean creature, as we talked about last week. All creatures are now purified and prepared for the glorious feast of the king. Gentiles are in. We are in. We are very familiar with this basic truth, as I mentioned before, which significantly dilutes the power of what's happening in Acts 10, the grace and the authority of what's happening in Acts 10. The basics are now available to everyone. Anyone who responds with faith to these basics of belief are adopted into the family and given a spot at the table. Anyone from any of the nations. Peter's vision confirmed this, along with Cornelius' vision, along with the incoming power of the Holy Spirit. All of Acts chapter 10 is this beautiful passage after beautiful passage that says, no, they're, they're in the family. They are welcome. But the response of Peter and his friends demonstrates just how earth-shattering God's spirit-filled stamp of approval was to the Jewish Christians. Peter's circumcised friends are astonished. And isn't that a hilarious way to group your friends? There's the circumcised friends and there's the uncircumcised friends. These are my circumcised friends. And obviously we know what that means. It means if they're circumcised, they are pure, acceptable, holy members of the family of God. They are Israelites. They are Jews. As opposed to these ragged, rough-around-the-edges, imperfect new members of the family of God, the Gentiles. But the circumcised believers, which is kind of this offhanded dismissal that Luke uses, because remember, Luke himself is not a circumcised former Jew. He's a Gentile. And so it's just his way of tossing it off. The hard-line, staunch Jewish believers, they see what's happening, and they can hardly believe their eyes and ears when they see and hear the effects of the Holy Spirit's descent upon the Gentiles. That's how shocking it is. They, this is obviously God at work. They know what Peter has seen. They see the Holy Spirit and its effects. And they're still shocked and still astonished and still can hardly wrap their heads around what's happening. And Peter, he, he just kind of shrugs and says, well, I guess that proves it. Might as well baptize him. And so he does in the name of Jesus Christ. Does anyone see any reason why we shouldn't baptize these people? No? Well, let's baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. And in his name, all peoples are united together. All peoples, whether male or female, sinner or saint, wealthy or poor, centurion or fisherman, Jew or Gentile. All are equal under the banner of the anointed Son of God. These are the basics, my friends. The basics of the message we bring to our dark and vandalized world. The basics are these. A message of hope and healing found in the teachings, sacrifice, and resurrected glory of Jesus Christ. A message of acceptance and unifying love for all people, regardless of the biases of others. Just like Chris Lance playing football somewhere in Banff National Park, walls between two distinct groups of people are being pummeled into dust through blood and through joy. That is a truly strange took for you to leave church with today, um, but there it is. You are accepted by Jesus' love and grace, experienced in the love and grace of Scripture and the love and grace of the church, and you are called to share that love and grace with others whom the world and sometimes the church have deemed unworthy. There is nobody unworthy. There is nobody unclean. All are worthy to have a seat at the table through the blood of Jesus. Love and grace. It doesn't get any more basic than that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love and grace. And thank you that your plan was always to welcome the nations into salvation. We are the nations. And we are so thankful that we're counted as worthy and acceptable in your eyes. 
And we recognize that that's only because of you, Jesus, because of your blood and your sacrifice and your glorification. We love you, Jesus, and it's an honor to, to taste your love and your grace and then to spread that love and grace out to our neighbors and to our community. Pray you would give us the strength to do just that. Um, help us to respond to your love and grace with belief in you, a belief that, that motivates us and propels us into service for you. You're very worthy, even though we are unworthy. And we thank you that the Gentiles are now accepted into the family of God. We praise you in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, church, you bunch of Gentiles, have a great week.